Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. We begin with breaking news. The suspect in the massacre of five people in Texas, including a nine-year-old boy, has been captured. We expect an FBI press conference at any moment. Francisco Oropesa was arrested tonight in the town called Cut and Shoot, Texas. That's about 17 miles from the scene of the killings. Let's go right to Ed Lavendera. He's live for us in Cleveland, Texas, the scene of the killings. What do we know, Ed? Hey, Allison. Well, actually, the uh, the address that we have where this arrest took place tonight is actually within 10 miles of uh, this uh, scene here where the murders took place four nights ago. Uh, Francisco Oropesa has been booked into uh, the Montgomery County Jail, which is the neighboring county from Jan- San Jacinto, where we are. Um, and he is being held tonight on a $5 million bond. Uh, law enforcement sources tell our Josh Campbell that he was found uh, in a home there, uh, hiding in a closet. Uh, we are expecting uh, law enforcement officers, and they are just now starting to gather. So we will uh, talk here as they start to make their way uh, to the press conference here that is expected to begin any second and hopefully get more details as to when this is going to happen. Let's listen in to this is the public information officer for the uh, uh, for the FBI. So he's helping out the, the photographers here at the scene. So uh, the FBI special agent in charge, the San Jacinto County Sheriff, is also uh, over there in the wings, and they'll be making their way over here uh, shortly. But uh, this is a manhunt that has had more than 250 officers combing through the region. Through the region. Um, and there were many people and residents in the neighborhood who had told us uh, they were beginning to suspect that perhaps this suspect had not made it very far from the crime scene um, since this happened on Friday night, Alice. And so uh, a great deal of movement here. We're told that uh, all of this unfolded rather uh, quickly throughout uh, the evening here. And we're hoping to get more details of exactly how all of this unfolded. And you'll excuse me, I'm trying to talk to you and also listen to what they're saying, make sure I'm not missing anything here as all this is unfolding here uh, tonight. Uh, so they'll be, we're told by the special agent will be making a comment and also the sheriff will be making comment and taking some questions. Uh, So we're hoping that we can be able to expand on exactly uh, what is happening here. And I'll let our photographer maybe like kind of zoom in on these uh, on the scene here is the you can see the law enforcement yeah, agents Ed. starting to make their way over here, Allison. I don't know if you can hear me, Ed, but uh, yeah. can you just tell us how the uh, neighborhood is feeling? I mean, I can imagine the huge sigh of relief. Yes, as soon as we heard uh, news that this had happened, I'd reached out to two of uh, one of the survivors and then a couple of the family members of uh, survivors that were inside the home. You can imagine they were uh, incredibly ecstatic. Uh, One of them said, we are so happy. Um, But what they were doing initially is uh, watching some of the video that was captured by a resident um, and it shows the arrest of Francisco Oropesa. They were frantically looking at this video, trying to see and confirm that it was indeed Francisco Oropesa. They were uh, trying to remember the tattoos that they had remembered seeing on their neighbor and comparing notes about whether or not uh, this was indeed the suspect that uh, they have been uh, hoping would be caught here within the last uh, four days. So that's the kind of um, emotion and roller coaster that they've been through over the over the last couple of hours. Uh, we um, Initially, that when I talked to them, that they had not been told by law enforcement that this arrest had taken place, but I believe that that has now happened. I think law enforcement here will be able to expand on that and confirm whether or not those conversations have happened. I suspect that they have, uh, but obviously a great deal of emotion for uh, those uh, family members who have... Uh, been through so much in the last four days. I'm going to step out of the way here, Allison, so you can start seeing them and we can listen in. I'm going to introduce 
Sheriff Greg Capers with the San Jacinto Sheriff's Office. Good evening. I'm Sheriff Greg Caper, San Jacinto County Sheriff's Office, uh, with great news. Uh, the suspect is in custody. I have just left Montgomery County Jail where he was taken and he has been magistrated. He now will be taken to my jail and uh, where his new residence will be. Um, I would like to thank the men behind me and the women behind me they're not women here right now but they everybody played a very very integral part in the arrest and capture of this coward um, everybody behind me has worked tirelessly I know that there are several uh, people out of these 225 plus officers in at this scene, not to include the millions of, of people, thanks to the media, y'all push the message out, uh, but we've had calls from Wyoming, Florida, South Texas, North Texas, Oklahoma, Maryland, and those are just a few of the places. We were here, they were there, Bottom line is, we now have this man in custody. He was caught hiding in a closet underneath some laundry. They, were, they effectively made the arrest. He is uninjured, and he is currently being taken to my facility in Cold Springs. Thank you. Can you tell us how uh, you guys were able to find him? What clues led you to him tonight? Well, it, it was a multi-jurisdictional operation, to say the least. Uh, somebody got a tip, uh, uh, DPSCID, uh, U.S. Marshals, FBI. We had a TAC team. They all meandered over there and uh, found found that, that tip to be true. And was this home a relative's home? Did, did he know where he was? That, that's unknown to me. Uh, maybe one of these guys behind me can speak to the actual... Uh, Information on, on, on where how how he was actually captured. Sheriff, what's your message to the family members, the surviving family members of those people who were killed in this attack? Well, that they, they can rest easy now um, because he is behind bars and he will live out his life behind bars for killing those five. Sure, guys, we have uh, we have hey, guys, we have time for questions afterwards, Sheriff. Uh, if uh, ASAC, the ASAC, uh, yes, please. This is the ASAC. Uh, Hey, good evening. Thank you, Sheriff Capers. Uh, my name is Jimmy Paul. I'm an assistant special agent in charge with the FBI Houston Division. Uh, thanks for uh, having me. So, just wanted to say first and foremost, the, the victims and their families are in the forefront of our minds, and we're extremely delighted that the suspect was captured. The tip for the suspect's location came in through the FBI's tip line, and we just want to thank the person who had the courage and bravery to call in the suspect's location. Special Agent Paul, or Ted Williams, Fox News, or do, do you know if this individual will be facing federal charges? 
Uh, currently, it's an ongoing investigation, and uh, he's being charged by the San Jacinto County Sheriff's what Office. What is the connection to the person who's harboring Bonifacio? Uh, sir, it's an ongoing investigation. I can't comment on did that at this point. Any, did he give any indication why he did this? What was his demeanor when he was apprehended? Was he agitated? Was he tired? Hey, guys, we're going to we're gonna let him get through his statement, and the U.S. Marshals, and afterwards, we will take questions. Is that cool? Okay, thank you. I just wanted to thank uh, the person who had the courage to call in the tip, and also I'd like to thank the many FBI personnel and local law enforcement agencies who worked nonstop to bring this uh, person to justice, uh, to bring a sense of uh, justice to the victims, and also a sense of security to the community of the San Jacinto uh, County community. Um, I mean, this is basically what we do. You know, we show up, we bring the adequate resources, and then we don't we don't let up. We always said. It's not a matter of if, but a matter of when the suspects will be caught, and we're extremely glad that today is the when. Um, at this time, I'd like to turn it over to the U.S. Marshal Service representative. Good evening. My name is Joe Ruiz de Chavez. I'm a supervisory deputy U.S. Marshal. I oversee the Gulf Coast Violent Offenders and Fugitive Task Force here in Houston, Texas. First, I want to say that this was an atrocious crime that devastated this community and this country. We received a, a call for request from Sheriff Capers and uh, we brought expertise and fugitive investigations and personnel to assist in this investigation. The Marshal Service is the oldest federal law enforcement agency and we have an expertise in hunting fugitives. This is a very sad time for the, the victims and I hope that this will bring them some comfort um, and they could grieve. Thank you. We'll open up for questions now. Can, we know can how you tell us if Oropesa had any help from anybody? Can you tell us if Oropesa had help from family members or any other friends in the area to help him hide for the last four days? I can say that we've contacted many families, associates, not only here in the Houston area, but across the country. Again, Does that mean he's had help over the last four days? From I can't members? comment on that. And did he ever reach out to any family members after the shooting incident on Friday night? I can't comment on that. Do we know how he's who do we have detained at the scene? The female detained at the scene. Who was that? Uh, again, this this is an ongoing investigation, and we can't disclose that. Sheriff Capers, you had mentioned previously that there were multiple occasions. You weren't exactly sure how many of police being called to that property for a firearm being discharged. Then we learned that Rapesa was removed from the country four times, and then in 2022, a protective order that was filed by his wife for domestic abuse. At any point, did that prompt further investigation from your office? Yes, sir. We, we actually filed charges on him in 2022, uh, and it, to, to the best of my knowledge, uh, they uh, the, we got a warrant for him, and. Uh, the constable went to serve him in another county because he, he left here and uh, never could make contact with the subject. Um, and uh, then a few days later, the victim went to the district attorney's office in our county and filed a non-prosecution statement. Sorry, sorry to belabor this point, but the, the address where this arrest took place have court documents that show it traces back to an aunt of Ordopesa, I believe. Um, is, is that still the case, that this would be a home of a family member? Can anybody confirm that? I can't. Uh, I mean, it, it, 
it's really it's, it's still ongoing uh, the investigation part I wasn't part of the arrest team do we have any idea how he got from the place where the shooting happened to cut and shoot? Did he use a vehicle? Did he walk? Do you guys have any idea what the time was? Once again, not, not that I know of. I, I have yeah, no knowledge. I mentioned multiple agencies. Was um, DHS also involved? Was Bortac the agency who actually went in and made the apprehension? Uh, they were part of that team, I do believe. Yes, ma'am. And now with the, the wife, the surviving wife um, that's still living at that home, she is currently an ICE fugitive. Is anything happening with her? Is she being investigated? Are there follow-ups happening with her? I've understood from deputies that she has been cooperating. And to my knowledge, uh, she is still there because they, the officers are still there. I have no direct knowledge because this, this, is, this has all happened within the last couple of hours. Sure, but she that, is still uh, there. Sheriff, sure, you guys people, believe, we know Sheriff, that. if you don't mind, do you guys right. believe that large reward that was put out, is that what uh, you know, made that person call in this tip? And will that money be going to the person who called in that tip? Uh, the money will be going to the, the person that called in the tip through the proper channels. Uh, yes, ma'am. I, I I'm not. I'm thinking it's still eighty thousand. Um, sure, Tavis. He's. Uh, we know that he's been in this country since 2016 illegally, meaning our peso. The question is, and he had an AR-15 rifle that he was shooting the night of this incident. Uh, have you ever been been able to connect the dots as to how an illegal alien was able to purchase or to? Uh, get that uh, AR-15 weapon? Well, I could just speak to conjecture. Um, buy it from somebody else uh, on the street. Are you conducting an investigation to try to connect those dots? Yes, sir, we are. That That is an ongoing investigation as well. Okay. Okay. When, when did you learn about the, the that the suspect was at this address and when did you actually go in? What was the time, the specific time? For tonight's arrest? Well, yeah. When did you first learn that he was there, and then when did you actually go in? We, we would probably need to defer that to the, the uh, uh, FBI or the U.S. Marshals. We received the tip at 5:15. Sorry, sorry about that. We received the tip at 5:15 p.m. and the arrest was made at 6:30 p.m. Can any of the participating agencies discuss how surprised were you that you ended up finding Otapesa 15 miles away or less from where this crime was committed? I can't really speak on that. I can just tell you that we're just extremely happy that the uh, the citizen had the courage and the bravery to call in that tip. Had you guys searched that area before you got the tip, or, and, or did you just go there once got the tip? Was that somewhere you had searched? I'm not sure if it was searched before, but we, we uh, immediately dispatched uh, the team out there as soon as we got the tip. We're going to take three more questions. Homes? Uh, searched as well, known areas, known accomplices, or any of his family members? Were those areas searched specifically as well? I know he's been talking about family. We're obviously hearing that this was a family's home, that this person was found. So were other family homes searched as well? Was this one just a random tip? What happened? Were there other families around? Uh, as far as we know, this was just a one-time random tip, but we've uh, contacted multiple houses and families throughout the the area what does contact mean have you gone in did you search these homes right we have under laundry piles and other families we've done not we've done knock and talks uh with with multiple homes throughout the area and we've gotten consent from the homeowners to go in and take a look so we've done done those kind of uh actions yeah two more questions was there any questioning sheriff is anyone else in custody or in questioning tonight no, ma'am, nobody else is in custody tonight, and 
I'm assuming that they are still at the house questioning the, the people that are, were at the house where the suspect was arrested. Sure. Yeah, what did you guys find anyone else, any other injuries while this suspect was on the run? Was anyone hurt, you know, in his quest to kind of evade law enforcement? As far as we know, we do not know anybody else that was injured. Have formal, have formal criminal charges been filed? Did he make any comment to what was his demeanor when he was placed under arrest? Yes, sir. Just the formal, any formal criminal charges filed? Do, do you know what those are yet? Murder. Five counts of murder? Five counts of murder. No. Five million dollar bond. Not capital murder? Five million? No, sir. Thank not, you very much. Not at this time. There is a video in social media, is correct person, Francisco Ropesa? Say it one more time. There is a video in social media, is the correct video? The, the correspondent to Francisco Ropesa. I haven't, I haven't had time to, to visit social media. Okay. Sure. Thank you very much, everyone. I'm going to clarify. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you guys very much. Guys, I'm going to clarify some of the spellings and, and answer some of the roundup questions here. I know that they're... Okay, we've been listening there to the press conference that just announced that that suspect, Francisco Oropesa, has been captured. He was captured um, at 6.30 local time tonight after a tip came in to the FBI at 5.15. This, of course, is the suspect who was wanted for the killing of five people, some of them family members, one of them a nine-year-old boy, after his neighbors asked him to stop shooting his rifle that was making so much noise near their sleeping baby, and he shot them um, for that. It sounds like he was arrested without incident, um, but he was found hiding in a closet underneath some laundry. Uh, we heard from our own correspondent there, Ed Lavendera. It sounds like, it may, according to court documents, that may have been the home of his aunt or a relative, but the police weren't willing to go that far. They do believe that the $80,000 reward money that was offered did help bring this suspect to justice. I want to bring in now uh, Andrew McCabe, CNN senior law enforcement analyst and former FBI deputy director. Andy, I am struck once again by the power of the public, the public and the partnership between the public and their eyeballs and law enforcement that then goes and executes the capture, and it worked. Allison, I'm telling you, it is one of the most powerful tools that law enforcement has uh, to work with today, and that is essentially crowdsourcing the investigation. It is so important in one of these manhunt situations to get the photograph of the offender out there, to get the name and identity out there. If you have a vehicle description, that's great too. Um, and then you, you know, you further incentivize that. Uh, that crowdsourcing by putting a significant reward on top of it. Uh, so it's, yeah, you're right. It's another example of how effective that can be. And let's look at it from the other perspective. It is not easy to go on the lam to run from hundreds of law enforcement officers who are looking for you. It's almost impossible to do without a pre-existing support system and a fair amount of cash to, to get you along. And all of that gets, um, you know, a thousand times harder when everyone else in the public in your town, in your county, knows what you've done and is looking for you. It's very hard to hide. He also had distinctive tattoos. We just had a picture of one of them. That wasn't his only one. And so that is also hard to hide from. I mean, that's what tipsters, it, we had heard as the press conference was starting that one of the ways they confirmed that, in fact, it was him was matching those um, tattoos to previous photos they had had and to what neighbors testified as him having. Yeah, that's really um, key. Those distinctive uh, physical uh, attributes or qualities, whether it's a tattoo or a particular scar or other mark, 
um, those things really make the identification quite easy when you have uh, when you have a good view of the suspect. So it, it's it's a remarkable story. My hats off to my former colleagues at the bureau and all of their partners in uh, state and local law enforcement. There, a lot of work. You know, let's not minimize how dangerous this work is. This is somebody who killed five people. And there was a there was a question from one of the reporters at the press conference whether or not they went you know essentially house to house everywhere around Cold Spring and the surrounding uh, cities. That's very hard to do. It's, it seems easy, but it would take thousands of people to do that quickly. But every place you search, every structure, every vehicle, you know, the officers who are doing that work are thinking, if he's in this place, he might shoot me before I see him. So it has to be done carefully, and that sometimes means slowly and deliberately. But uh, they really did their jobs here. Excellent police work because, again, the, the tip came in at 5.15 p.m. to the tip line and basically an hour later at 6.30 p.m. he was arrested hiding under that pile of clothing. So um, everyone is relieved, obviously, uh, particularly that community that lost so many people. Uh, Andy McCabe, thank you very much. Really appreciate you being here tonight. And again, our breaking news, the suspect in the Texas massacre is in custody. He was found under laundry in a closet just about 10 miles away from the scene of the killings. There's a lot to talk about with my panel right after this very quick break. We do have breaking news tonight. The suspect in the Texas massacre is now in custody. He was found hiding in a closet under a pile of laundry. My panel is here with me. We have Coleman Hughes, host of Conversations with Coleman Podcast, Jessica Washington from The Root, Mo Shwanunu, host of the Mo News Podcast, and Ellie Honig, CNN senior legal analyst. So great news, guys. I mean, that is so rewarding for law enforcement and for that community to know that this um, suspect who's wanted for such a heinous crime is um, out, uh, I mean, is now in custody. So, Ellie, we just heard from the sheriff. We heard from the assistant special agent in charge of the FBI about this guy. Basically, they got a tip into the FBI hotline. His picture had been posted everywhere. We had been broadcasting it. All sorts of TV stations had. They got a tip at 5.15 p.m. He was arrested at 6.30 p.m. It sounded like he... It may have been his aunt's house, though the police wouldn't confirm that. Now what? Yeah, so now he's going to be prosecuted. And one of the questions that people may have, and somebody asked, I think, the sheriff, is this going to be a federal or a state prosecution? The sheriff seemed a little unsure, but I'll tell you the answer right now appears to be state. Yes, the FBI was at that press conference. Yes, the U.S. Marshals were at that press conference. They're federal agencies, but federal agencies often assist in this type of manhunt. It looks like he's going to be prosecuted in the state of Texas. Not a great place to be prosecuted, by the way, if you're a defendant. And there was a question asked of the sheriff, is he, what is he charged with? And the sheriff just said murder. And the follow-up was, well, capital murder, which is known in most other jurisdictions as first-degree murder. Mm. And I believe the sheriff said, no, but that's a decision to be made later. And that will be a decision to be made by prosecutors. And as I understand Texas law, if you kill a person under the age of 10, and one of the victims here reportedly is nine, then that could be a count of capital murder. So either way, this person's certainly going to be charged with murder. Prosecutors are going to have to figure out within the next several hours, if they haven't already, what degree of murder are we going to charge this guy with? Well, your thoughts? So Oropesa, it's an interesting timeline that we've learned over the last few days, right? Deported from the U.S. four times. As we were talking about earlier, 
09 twice, 2012 deported a third time, 2016 deported a fourth time. Last year, as the sheriff was saying, uh, his wife reported uh, that uh, he had uh, assaulted her, domestic violence. The cops clearly interacted with him. In 2012, he had a... But then uh, she wouldn't prosecute, it sounded like. She didn't press charges against him. But he felt comfortable enough and was able to own at least five weapons and be shooting in his backyard after all of this. Um, So it certainly leads to questions about generally our policies. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Coleman, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone is going to be thinking, how did this guy, if he was deported four times, that would imply he crossed the border illegally five times, right? So how does a guy like this that clearly is, is just red flags out the wazoo, how is this guy still in the country and able to commit a crime like this, right? I mean, it makes us question our our border security, first of all, and the extent to which, you know, if, if this guy, you know, if police come into contact with this guy, what is their protocol, right? Do you deport someone? Do you detain someone? But do we think he's really coming through a border crossing and showing papers? I mean, we don't know is the answer. But might oh, he also just be sneaking sure, across the sure. border? Sure, I suspect once, once you've been deported once, they will have a file on you at immigration. So if you try to come through again and you present your actual ID, they'll, they'll turn you right around or arrest you. Right. Sorry. Jessica, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is incredibly troubling that he was able to own this many weapons, especially with these red flags, including kind of the fact that his wife had, you know, originally said that he committed domestic violence, even if she decided not to go forward with filing those charges. So I think that's a huge concern that he had all these weapons and this history, you know, of suspicion of domestic violence. Um, and the fact that he didn't end up being deported is, you know, there's some questions about how that ended up happening, how he was able to stay in the country after being deported four times. So I think there's a lot that we're going to have to unravel in the next couple of days. Yeah, you're right. There are still so many questions, but thank goodness he's, you know, behind bars tonight. OK, we'll bring you more on the capture of that Texas massacre suspect later in the program. Up next, we want to talk about the Supreme Court's ethics problem. Who's going to make the highest court in the land address the ethics. My panel is going to weigh in on that. The Supreme Court is the highest court in the land. So who governs them? That's the question after a series of ethical violations coming to light about a couple of the justices, particularly Clarence Thomas, who has reportedly had a billionaire friend bankroll his lavish vacations for decades. Now Congress is debating what to do about this. And no surprise, that debate turned immediately partisan. This is not about making the court better. This is about destroying a conservative court. Judges are expected to comply with high standards of ethics and integrity. And it does appear there needs to be better oversight. I've been a longtime advocate for transparency and accountability because I believe the public's business should be public. Hey, back with our panel now. Joining us is former Senate candidate Joe Pinion. Joe, should Congress, does Congress need to do something to set an ethics code for the Supreme Court? Yes. I think that at this juncture, it's clear uh, that we need a code of ethics, not just for the Supreme Court, but for Congress itself. And this is a wonderful opportunity. But perhaps Congress does it, have a code of ethics. Eh, not really. If we talk about insider trading that is rampant on, on, you know, on the Congressional Hill. So I think at some point we should just be embracing the opportunity to simply say that if the highest court of the land doesn't have a code of ethics, then how can they assumedly be the guardrails for our democracy and our republic? And it's up to Congress, you think, to set that for them. They, they can't be trusted to do it themselves. Well, I disagree. I think 
it is an opportunity for Chief Justice Roberts, particularly since he has said he's not going to go testify before Congress, to come up with the most stringent code of ethics ever set forth and then have all the justices combined collectively say they want Congress to go ahead and implement that. I think that's what the Republicans should be pushing for, not trying to play pin the blame on the donkey uh, with the Democrats because of this perceived threat to what they call a conservative court. Ellie, what needs to happen right now? This should have nothing to do with partisan politics. There are 800-plus federal judges in this country. All of them, except for nine, are bound by a code of ethics. This is a Supreme Court that's just out of control. They've absolutely lost their way. They've lost us in the public, and it's their fault. Now, just in the last year or so, let's just recap. They've leaked the Dobbs opinion. We've learned that... Well, I don't know if one of the justices did. No, but somebody in the Supreme Court, within the Supreme Court's purview, and I'm counting them all together collectively... We've learned that there's lobbying groups that donate money to the Supreme Court Historical Society, get to rub shoulders with the justices, and in the case, as reported by the New York Times, Justice Alito allegedly leaked what was going to happen in an opinion to one of those donors. We learned that Clarence Thomas has taken hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of gifts and not reported them. We've seen other... In the form of travel. Right, in the form of travel and flights and vacations. And we've seen other justices who either themselves or spouses have had big money, financial dealings with people, and again, not reported them. And when they get called on this, finally, by the Senate Judiciary Committee and asked for testimony, they get this condescending letter from the chief justice, and by the way, signed by all nine justices. So this isn't about one side or the other, saying, no, thank you, we (laughs) shan't appear. And by the way, what they say in the letter is the reason that you all are having problems with us is because you misperceive us. It's your fault. Because we're above the law and we don't answer to anybody. I will read a portion of that letter. I don't remember it being in Old English, but uh, as Ellie <laughs> suggested, I like that. The justices, like other federal judges, consult a wide variety of authorities to address specific ethical issues. They may turn to judicial opinions, treatises, scholarly articles, disciplinary decisions, and the historical practice of the court and the federal judiciary. They may also seek advice from the court's legal office and from their colleagues. Basically, Jessica, as Ellie was saying, they're not going to change anything. Yeah, and I just, it it's such a disservice to the court not to want to be bound by these ethics. And I think that's why it's so important for Congress to do this or for the court to do it themselves. Because I think obviously people have lost trust in the Supreme Court. And a lot of that has to do with the decisions, but it also has to do with these things that we've seen come out about Thomas, you know, the reporting on Gorsuch, all of these different things, whether or not you agree with them, it adds to this concern that why is the highest court in the land not bound by these basic ethics rules? What's the answer, Coleman? Look, I think if Congress really wants to tackle corruption, it should get its own house in order, okay? There's insider trading, dumping stocks, buying stocks the day before that industry is regulated. And they have to disclose that if it's over $1,000 within 45 days. And the penalty for doing that is a mere $200, and they still don't pay it. Uh, This this happens all the time, right? So it's, it's a bit of the pot calling the kettle black, if we're looking at, uh, you know, the federal government in general, what's the most corrupt branch? I would say probably Congress. That doesn't mean I'm against Supreme Court getting its house together, too. But Congress is, is somewhat the wrong messenger. I hear you. But who should govern it? I mean, since the Supreme Court is not doing it themselves, mm-hmm. who should govern the Supreme Court? Well, then, it, I mean, it should either be it should either be the executive branch or the, or the legislative, legislative branch, for sure. Well, I mean, I, n- none of these branches can be trusted to police themselves. I, I mean, this is lunacy. I mean, it is obvious the Supreme Court has to have a code of ethics, particularly when the trust of that sacred branch has been effectively uh, besmirched. So at the end of the day, yes, if Republicans are going to bang a table about AOC wearing a ridiculous dress to the Met Gala, which was just yesterday, then perhaps we should think we should have a code of ethics for the Supreme Court. And while you're at 
Democratic, perhaps you should have uh, a renewed uh, code of trust for the people in Congress who have America's deepest secrets and are using them to put money in their own bank accounts. So uh, these are undeniable truths. Uh, it's not partisan. We should just be able to get around, get it done. And this gridlock in D.C. over something so basic is why we see people so dissatisfied with our representation uh, across the political spectrum. But you're not suggesting a dress code for AOC. That's good. I'm, you're just bringing it up. You're just weaving it in. I'm, I see what's I'm just, happening. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, Elliot, I mean, we have a few seconds left. That's So the answer is... If they can't do it themselves, Congress. Yeah, Congress can come in and either say, here's your ethics code, or you have to do it yourself. We'll let you do it, but you have to do it. Great. Thank you all very much. Stick around, please. Should a 14-year-old be allowed to serve alcohol at restaurants? Wisconsin is considering that. We're going to talk about it next. So, should 14-year-olds be allowed to serve alcohol at work? The Washington Post reports that Wisconsin is considering allowing teenagers as young as 14 to serve booze at restaurants. There's a growing trend in some states to roll back restrictions regarding minors working. My panel is back with me to discuss all this. Jessica, what's wrong with a 14-year-old serving alcohol? I don't like it. I think, I mean, just this idea of children being kind of this in-between between adults, adults who are drinking... And kind of end their drinks. So, okay, so you have the situation where a 14-year-old now has to say, you're cut off to, like, a drunk, angry person. Now, I know that's difficult for even, you know, young adults to do. But now we're asking, like, children, you know, who could still be in middle school. 14-year-olds can be in middle school. And that's just, I think that's a line that I don't, I don't want us to cross. Hmm. Coleman? You can also picture a scenario where you have drunk male customers with underage girls. And, and, and now you're subjecting them to the potential come-ons of, of drunk Except patrons. Except that 14-year-olds are allowed to be bus girls and bus boys. You're still around drunk patrons. I'm not sure what the difference is between walking yeah. up and handing a beer to somebody and clearing their plate from them. No, that's, I mean, I suppose that's right. But there is there is something, I think there's something more, um, it sets up situations to be worse, I think, if they're actually the ones bringing the drink. And if you have to contact the 14-year-old girl to get your next drink, right? You have to call her. That It sets up way more opportunities for things to go get weird. I think that the reason Wisconsin is considering it is because they do have 14-year-olds allowed to work in restaurants. And what they say is when they can't serve drinks, it causes, it's like a, a break in the, um, you know, responsibility line. Like they're, they're sort of milling around the bar waiting for a waitress to be free to be able to go get them their drink for their table and they can't bring it to their table. You can see that there's a traffic jam issue at restaurants. That's why they're considering doing it. Joe, do you like it or do you hate it? Look, I think we're fundamentally asking the wrong question. I think that on some basic level, I think all of those are really uh, good points, but I think there's a deeper issue that we're not talking about, which is that it used to be that kids would work to save up for their first car, uh, to save up for that dress they really wanted for prom, and now they're saving money to buy the insulin that their parents can't afford. So there is a real deep, deep pain on Main Street that hasn't been addressed. The economy is not working for far too many Americans, and until we want to address those underlying issues, then all of this is really just, you know, band-aids on a gashing wound. So that's why you think 14-year-olds are going to work? 
I think that the reality, well, look, I think that you raise an interesting point. I think, again, anyone who's been in the restaurant business, hospitality business knows that when you've got one bartender and five servers, bad things happen, customers get mad. So I think just being able to reach around and pour uh, the beer makes it a lot easier. But I do think that it is a symptom for a much deeper problem, which is that the American economy has stopped working for far too many Americans. And the reality is that whether we're talking about the immigration issues, whether we're talking about uh, just the everyday issues, people have lost trust in the government at the federal level and at the state level to solve these problems. There's the larger issue that Joe's talking about, which is this is not just Wisconsin, right? In Arkansas, they just eliminated work permits. They're letting kids under 16 work. In Iowa, there's a bill to let 14-year-olds work night shifts, 15-year-olds on assembly lines. Um, And there's bills in Minnesota, Missouri, Ohio, Georgia, as we are looking into this. Ultimately, we have a worker shortage. By the way, we began this broadcast with an immigration issue that leads to this worker shortage. Then you have the post-COVID thing. So this is a, there's a larger issue happening in this country right now in regards to the labor shortage, which is why we keep looking younger, it appears. Yeah, that's what you were saying, Coleman, that you think that there might be other solutions before we put minors to work in an assembly line? Right. Yeah. Like if, we, if we have a labor market short, short, shortage, shouldn't we maybe go through plan A and plan B before we start pressing our children into jobs? I mean, uh, you know, I, I think... You know, labor economists should be consulted about like what policies can, can we implement so that these states don't feel such a pressure to um, you know to, to hire minors. What about just the benefit that comes, the value, the life experience, the teachable moment that comes from having a job at 14? I mean, obviously, I'm sure all of us were babysitters at some point at 14, but when you get into a real job, it's different. Yeah, I think there's a lot of benefits to you know working, you know, when it's when it's appropriate. I think particularly I'm, this assembly line issue, having kids in factories, that definitely concerns me as young as 15. They just, we already know it's not safe for adults. In many cases, we've heard about these horror stories at Amazon warehouses. The idea of putting children in those situations is definitely concerning. Having children who should be in school learning on night shifts is also a major concern. I understand kind of wanting them to have these really good moments. And I think there are some great moments you can have from working a job as a child. But you know, 15-year-olds in assembly lines in factories is just not it. Right. Well, I think even to that point, right, the Wall Street Journal came out with that report today saying that, again, the greatest need, those overnight shifts, right, those highly skilled mechanical jobs, which, again, to your point, we're drifting towards having children do those jobs. If you go back to the original intent of the law, the law was to make sure that children got out of the factory and into the school, into an environment where they were going to acquire the skills they needed to be gainfully employed adults. And so the other issue is that the school has failed to deliver on that charter, that at many times times, case by case, city by city, state by state, kids don't know how to read at grade level, they don't know how to do math at grade level, and increasingly, these young people are deciding, well, I better start working sooner, because obviously, this time I'm spending in the classroom is not actually preparing me for the life I plan on living or the money and the wages I need in order to support my family and my loved ones. Okay, friends, thank you very much for all of that. Next, what the writer's strike means for all of us. What shows you can still watch and what shows you cannot? Thousands of film and television writers walking off the job and onto the picket line today as the Writers Guild of America officially called a strike against the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. This strike will have an immediate impact on the late night TV shows, which are now forced to run repeats for the duration of this walkout. But the writers are getting support from hosts. It is uh, uh, something that is not done lightly, 
and that I will be heartbroken to miss you as well. Without these people, this show would be called The Late Show with a guy rambling about the Lord of the Rings and boats for an hour. Saturday Night Live will also air repeat episodes until further notice. Striking writers are demanding better compensation. They say that streaming has changed the industry so much that they're making less than they were a decade ago. The Alliance says they did provide a comprehensive package proposal to the Guild with increases in compensation and improvements for residuals. Okay, coming up, some of our favorite reporters are here to talk about the stories that they are working on for tomorrow. They're going to share their scoops with us next. Welcome back, everybody. We have two big stories for you tonight. The suspect in the Texas massacre is in custody. We'll have more on that in a second. And in Washington, the rumblings are getting louder that the U.S. could default on our debt in less than a month. We have our panel of great reporters here tonight to bring us the latest on these and what they're working on for tomorrow. So we have Lauren Fox, Danny Freeman, Omar Jimenez, and Paula Reed. Okay, Omar, you have an update on our breaking news tonight. So the suspect in that horrible Texas massacre is now in custody. What have you learned? Yeah, Francisco Oropesa, he was on the run, of course, after uh, being suspected of killing five people, including a nine-year-old. After what wasn't really a dispute, but seemed to be one family saying, hey, do you mind shooting your gun on the other side of the house because we've got a baby in there trying to sleep? So they tracked him down. They actually found him in a town called Cut and Shoot, Texas, less than 20 miles from Cleveland, Texas, which is where this shooting happened. And it came or it was spurred from a tip from the public where the FBI says a tip from the public came in at 5.15 p.m. At 6.30 p.m., they had actually apprehended him. And take a listen to officials on how they found this suspect. He was caught hiding in a closet underneath some laundry. They They effectively made the arrest. He is uninjured. And he is currently being taken to my facility in Cold Springs. Somebody got a tip, uh, uh, DPS CID, uh, U.S. Marshals, FBI. We had a TAC team. They all meandered over there and uh, found, found that, that tip to be true. We're just extremely happy that the, uh, the citizen had the courage and the bravery to call in that tip. And, you know, it's interesting where we were just talking about this last night. And at that point, what we knew was that they had no significant leads. And you see what a difference 24 hours makes. And uh, the way they were describing it in that press conference is it wasn't necessarily a, a pattern of tips coming in. It really was one tip that sealed the deal, essentially. And as you heard the uh, FBI assistant special agent in charge uh, for Houston say, they think that brave person for essentially risking a little bit of of their safety to try and get this guy. And all it takes is one tip. And it sounds like that tipster will get $80,000. I mean, that's what the sheriff was saying that that, uh, he was hoping. Okay, so now what happens to this suspect? Yeah, so now at this point, you heard a little bit of the sheriff. He is in custody. He's facing uh, at least five charges uh, of murder. He's being held on $5 million bond. Uh, We knew from sources he had been uh, deported four times before. So there is some investigation going into there as well. And there were some questions, too, because of potential immigration status of how he could have acquired the weapon. And the sheriff was asked about that. And he said, look, I'm only going to speak from conjecture, but all you have to do is 
buy it from someone else on the street. Guys, I think we have some new video right now coming into us tonight into our newsroom of the suspect. Let's show uh, what it says. I'm told that it shows him being detained. I assume that means captured tonight because he has been detained in the past. He was also arrested for a DWI years ago. But it looks like this looks to me like from tonight. Uh, Yes, this is tonight. It's hard to see at that distance. It is hard to see, but we do know it was a multi-jurisdictional operation here where uh, you had U.S. Marshals, you had the FBI, you had uh, local police as well. So that's why you may not see marked vehicles. You would see, you know, trucks or or vans that they would typically use here. And we are still trying to confirm what the relationship of this home was to to this suspect because, again, not found too far away. He's found inside a home hiding under some clothes. So presumably he was able to get in somehow. Right. Um, and authorities don't say that there's anyone else injured here. So it doesn't seem like he overpowered someone to, right. to get inside. This video shows that he was arrested, as they say, without incident, meaning he didn't fight back. He wasn't armed under the pile of clothing when they found him. And you can see... Um, that he's handcuffed here and being led uh, to a car. So thank goodness for that, because uh, it was safe to assume that he was armed and dangerous after what he had done to that family. This, by the way, this video, I'm told, was taken by a neighbor who had been laying down in bed at 6 p.m. and then heard helicopters overhead and wondered what the commotion was. And that's where we can see the suspect a little bit more clearly and the, I guess, marshals in um, black jackets uh, putting him into the vehicle. It really is amazing. I mean, you, you you rarely hear that no one is injured when apprehending, you know, a suspect in a potential mass shooting like this. It's incredible that, like you said, no one was hurt and that he is in handcuffs right now in the back of a law enforcement vehicle. Yeah, it's amazing that they, it took them a little more than an hour. They got the tip at 5.15 and... They were arrested him at 6.30, and obviously he, I don't know, he wasn't expecting it. He was where they thought he was going to be, hiding under a pile of clothing. So that's great. And, you know, listening to uh, you know, our, our colleague, Ed Lavendera, who's actually, you know, down there uh, on the scene, was at that press conference. He said he had been in contact with some of the surviving uh, family members from this. And, and in some ways, uh, you know, they, they're, they're glad that, this man has been caught, but also it was something that authorities uh, had brought up as well, that they hope it brings at least some sort of peace. But when you consider what they're actually dealing with, having lost so many of their loved ones in the flash of an eye over seemingly no real provocation, uh, I'm sure it's some comfort, but I can't imagine it's going to do anything to obviously bring back those loved ones, but help them sleep at night in the near future. Yeah, understood. All right, obviously, we will stay on this as we get more video uh, and more details about that arrest. Meanwhile, let's talk with Lauren about this fight over the debt limit. Is it getting farther apart tonight somehow? (laughs) Well, I think, as John McCain used to say, it always gets darker before it's pitch black. And that is sort of where we are at right now with this debt ceiling negotiation. I think in part that's because you have the Speaker of the House that is out of the country right now. This big meeting is expected to happen next Tuesday. So that gives both sides a little bit of time to flex their political muscle. And that's exactly what they're doing. You heard from Chuck Schumer earlier today saying that he is in the same place. He does not think that there should be a negotiation over increasing the debt ceiling, saying that if they want to have a discussion about spending down the road, they're totally 
willing to do that. But that is where things stand at the moment. You also saw House Democrats trying to take some steps to try and put themselves in a position where if you get up to the X date, you would have what is known as a discharge petition, which means they could force a vote on the floor. That does require, though, a handful of Republicans to go along with that effort. And so far, all of the moderate Republicans that our colleagues on the Hill have been talking to have said absolutely not. They are not going to help with that. So that is sort of the emergency backdoor opportunity that already they're saying no way. When Senator Schumer says they shouldn't negotiate on, you know, future budget issues in the past, did they negotiate when President Obama was president? Did they negotiate on this? Well, the argument has been that they did not negotiate on the actual increase of the debt ceiling itself. Yes, there were always negotiations over the appropriations process. That is how we fund the government year after year. But they are two separate issues, is the argument that Democrats are making over and over again. And Republicans are arguing, yeah, maybe that's the case. But the issue here is that Republicans are in control of the House and you do have to negotiate if you have divided government. And I think that both sides are digging in right now. Hopefully, we start to see some of that break next Tuesday. Well, and you, uh, I mean, you've talked about this before, but obviously, it's a very slim majority on the House side for, for Republicans. And so when, you know, when Kevin McCarthy goes into this meeting with President Biden and the other leadership, it's, it's not about cooler heads prevailing in that meeting, but it's, okay, cooler heads may, provide, uh, may prevail there, but then it's a whole bunch of other cooler heads within the Republican majority in the House that, that have to essentially coalesce around what McCarthy is able to, to get out of that meeting. Am I reading that correct? Absolutely. But I would also sort of push back on this idea that a resolution is going to come out of one meeting. Yeah. This is going to be a weeks-long negotiation. And there aren't that many days to actually negotiate. When you look at the congressional calendar, the House and the Senate are only both in session eight days over the next couple of weeks, you also have the president going out of the country. And, you know, the president can pick up the phone and negotiate anywhere that he is. And that is the argument that the White House has made. But it just gives you a sense that this deadline is not only coming, but it's coming when not all of the players are going to be at the boardroom having a discussion about this. Why why can't they start earlier? They have phones. We've (laughs) all been on Zoom meetings. Why not get it underway? I get you're traveling, but we work from home and remotely, why can't they? Well, I think that Congress operates under deadlines. And this is part of why getting the X date yesterday was so critical to getting these negotiations rolling because Congress just doesn't operate well when they don't know when the deadline is. They're kind of like journalists in that way, right? They just operate well when they know that there's a breaking deadline that they have to meet, and that's exactly what you're starting to see. Um, But I think next week is going to be so crucial, even though I do not expect a resolution out of that meeting on Tuesday. Well, sorry, so then can I ask, so again, to your point, if they're not going to negotiate in earnest until Tuesday, are we just going to keep seeing you know, chest beating every single day up to next. I mean, we have a whole week of this, right? Yeah, I mean, and really we've had months of this, right? Right. Because the president and the House Speaker met about 90 days ago now. And that gives you a sense of like how long this has actually been going on, that both sides have been dug in. I think, though, the reality is there's going to start to be a real impact on people, on the economy. When? But does that start June 1st or before that? I think it starts before that. And that's what you saw in the last debt ceiling showdown, What started to move lawmakers was when the market started to move. And that didn't happen because they went over the cliff. It happened because they were getting dangerously close to going over the cliff. So expect that that could happen soon. But the question of like how this impacts 
when the Treasury Department can make payments, I mean, that happens after you breach that deadline. And it really could have an impact on real people. It could have an impact on government workers. It could be have an impact on when you get your Social Security check. You may not get it on time. And we don't know what the Treasury Department would prioritize, but our best clues are to look back to 2011 and the plans that they started putting together when they started getting worried that Congress was going to go over this cliff. And that really does give us a sense of this has a real impact on what bills the government can pay. All right, well, can you come back later and tell us when to start panicking? <laughs> I will. I don't want to panic on can just watch the just every single night. Yeah, every right. night. I know, I know they want us to panic every night, but just tell me when I need to start panicking. I'll let okay. you know. Thank you very much. All right, stay with us, everybody, because next, Danny's got the story of a Muslim mayor who was invited to the White House, then barred by the Secret Service a half an hour before the event. Danny's going to explain what's going on. A Muslim mayor was turned away from a Ramadan reception at the White House on Monday. He says he believes it was racial profiling. The mayor of Prospect Park, New Jersey, says the Secret Service notified him 30 minutes before he was set to arrive that he would not be allowed to enter the White House. Danny Freeman is following this story. So, Danny, you spoke to the mayor today. What is happening here? Yeah, that's right. You know, there there are a couple of different things happening right here. And the main takeaway is that we are basically at a standstill with the mayor, members of the New Jersey Muslim community, and right now the White House and the Secret Service. So just to kind of, you know, recap what happened, we're talking about Mayor Mohammed Karula. He's the mayor of Prospect Park, New Jersey, like you said. Yesterday, uh, the Biden administration, the White House, invited a number of Muslim American uh, faith leaders and also elected officials to the White House to mark the end of Ramadan 30 minutes before that was about to kick off. Uh, the mayor says that he got a phone call actually from a staffer at the White House, from like the social group. And that staffer told him, Secret Service has flagged you. You're not allowed to come to this event. And the uh, Muslim advocates in New Jersey, they were very upset about that. The mayor, of course, was very upset about that. And that's where we are today. Now, they call it racial Profiling. They say that this is an example of another example, I should say, of abuse of power by the federal government against folks of Arab descent, uh, Muslim Americans. And that's really where we are at this point. The White House and the Secret Service are pretty much not saying anything as to why they made this decision today. And then John Miller, our CNN law enforcement analyst, had some interviews about this with other law enforcement. Yeah, that's right. So uh, John Miller, of course, CNN, he said that multiple law enforcement sources told him the mayor had been flagged for some concerning contacts over the course of a federal law enforcement counterterrorism investigation. What does that mean? That's a little unclear at the moment. Uh, and I think that that will speak to the larger point of what it means to be on a watch list, what it means to be on one of these lists. But I want to play some sound from the mayor. Uh, we asked him about this today at his press conference. Take a listen to what he said. Our core issue today is that there is a secret list that everyone knows it exists due to the January 26th leak, but our government continues to use it despite it being discriminatory and ruled illegal by a federal judge. This has inconvenienced, harassed, and humiliated me and my family ever since, every time we went through an airport. So you can see, clearly frustrated. Uh, And for the mayor here, he feels this is 
just one out of a number of events that have happened over the past several years where he feels persecuted by what he believes is the presence on this watch list. So he knows that he was not allowed in the White House. Our reporting indicates that he was on this list, but there's no indication from the Secret Service or the White House that is why he was rejected. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And, and the challenge is, is that we're in a bit of a sticky spot because, again, the White House, they don't want to take any questions about this. They continue to refer all questions to the Secret Service. And the Secret Service, they said, uh, we regret that there may have been any inconvenience to the mayor in this particular, you know, in telling him, hey, 30 minutes before, you're not allowed to come in. But they said, we're not going to disclose any information about security procedures and, and what goes into that. So they have not confirmed really that the list itself was why we said you can't come in. That's a pretty big leap and a big accusation for him to make as someone who's gone in and out of the White House gate so many times as a reporter. We know the Secret Service has broad latitude about who comes inside and outside uh, that premises. But that being said, this idea of a watch list, hugely problematic in terms of the constitutional protections you're entitled to in this country. It's overly vague. Uh, It's not clear how you get on it. It's not clear how you get off of it. So it seems like there's a conflagration of two separate issues, but you don't have a constitutional right to be inside the White House. But it probably would be good for him to, to, again, continue to bring attention to this issue of the watch list and how people get on it and stay on it and then are limited potentially in their travel and other opportunities. Well, absolutely. And again, you know, what he, the mayor, and also the uh, Center for American Islamic Relationships Care, uh, Relations Care, New Jersey, they actually presented us, the reporters who were all in this press conference today, with what they called a redacted version of this list, showing the mayor's full name and his birth date, saying, look, this is evidence that we believe he has been flagged, and they're connecting the dots that this is perhaps the reason why he was not allowed into this event. But to your point, we don't have... We have not had that confirmation specifically just yet. It's a great way to bring attention to the watch list. I think most people kind of forgot about the yeah. watch list, yeah. right? It's unless you're on it. Exactly. Yeah, then you never you forget. Well, you or unless, you know, world. like folks in this community, they say they have not forgotten because yeah. it's it's been persecution it's after persecution and the it, stories are not going away. Bring it back into the consciousness and maybe we can try to get some of that system reformed. So if you do find yourself on it and you don't believe you should be, you can maybe get yourself off of it. Right, but there's no process to get. None, I mean, that's what we're talking about. There's no process to get yourself off it. That seems Kafkaesque, frankly, that right? it's just never ending, and you don't even know if you're yeah. on it until you're flagged somehow. Well, and again, lest we forget, even the mayor doesn't know how he got on it in the first place, right? I mean, he was speculating a few different things earlier today. He actually said during this press conference that uh, at one point he had gone to Syria, and the FBI had actually asked him to be an informant, and he declined that, and he said that that sometimes is a way to get you on that watch list. But again, you don't, it's hard to know why your name appears on it in the first place. And like you said, there's no online form you can fill out to then take yourself off of that yeah. or make an appeal, really. It feels it's, a little it's re- challenging. Retaliatory if you decline to be an informant, which can be dangerous, not only for you, but also potentially for your family, for there to be repercussions. A lot of huge constitutional questions. That's really the argument that they would make. This issue also came up in the broader gun debate on Capitol Hill, where there had been some idea that perhaps one way to limit gun ownership would be if you were on some kind of watch list. And interestingly, this became kind of an issue where some Democrats and Republicans were saying, well, actually, we don't know that much about the watch list to begin with. And it's not clear how someone gets on and off of it. And therefore, that actually might be problematic in terms of a broader discussion about who can buy guns in this country and who can't. Yeah. But that is one of those. That. Because it sounds, it's one of those knee-jerk things where you're like, uh, of course somebody on a watch right. list shouldn't have a gun. <laughs> exactly. Until you realize that people are mistakenly on a watch list or on there forever. Yes. Well, and Kara said, I mean, there could, 
there could be as many, you know, well over a million people on some of these lists. Yeah. And and how do you go through every single name and, you know, make sure that's correct? Or it, it, It's challenging. There are a couple of different challenges, especially when it's kind of hidden from the public eye. All right. Yeah. Thank you very much for alerting us to all of this. Meanwhile, dramatic testimony from a friend of E. Jean Carroll in the rape and defamation, defamation trial against Donald Trump today. Paul has been following the story closely for us and tells us where the trial is headed now. It was a dramatic day of testimony in the civil rape and defamation trial against former President Trump. Two witnesses testifying on behalf of E. Jean Carroll, a longtime friend of Carroll's, described a phone call that she received moments after Trump allegedly attacked Carroll in a department store dressing room in the mid-1990s. A second witness testified that Donald Trump sexually assaulted her on an airplane in the late 1970s. Donald Trump denies any wrongdoing. Okay, so Paula, you were in the courtroom today. Tell us what you saw. What was it like? So today was all about bringing forth witnesses who could corroborate E. Jean Carroll's testimony. She's been testifying for several days. She testified, answered questions from her lawyers, and was also cross-examined by Trump attorneys. The first witness who you just referenced, Lisa Birnbach, she is significant because she she presents a contemporaneous recollection of this alleged assault. She says that she was called by Carroll a short time after this alleged assault. She describes her friend on the phone as as hyperventilating, uh, being emotional. And Birnbach says, when I heard what had happened, it was clear to me that this was a rape. But she said at this time, Carroll preferred to frame this as a fight or a tussle. She wasn't ready to say that word, rape. Now, this is significant because we're talking about allegations that are approximately roughly 30 years old. There's no eyewitness testimony. But when you have something like this, when you have a contemporaneous account from someone who says, yes, I heard about it shortly after, that's really a boost to Carol's case. But defense attorneys cross-examined her and pointed to a lot of posts that she's made that make it clear, politically, she's not a fan of Trump. Now, the other witness, uh, among the other witnesses we heard from today, Jessica Leeds. Now, she alleges that Trump groped her and kissed her on a flight back in the 70s. She said she was sitting in coach, she was upgraded to first class, sat next to him, and then he had tried this. She said she got out of her seat after a short period of time, didn't tell anyone, went to the back of the plane. She says no one helped her. But the significance of her testimony is part of an effort to establish that this is a pattern. What E. Jean Carroll said happened is a pattern. Now, we've all heard the Access Hollywood tape. So E. Jean Carroll's lawyers are hoping that they hear her story, hear stories like that of Jessica Leeds, which Trump has denied, and that they will see a pattern and all of this will help boost her chances of winning this case. I think we have some sound with Jessica Leeds outside of the court today. So let's listen to that. I would like to express my support for E. Jean Carroll with her suit against Trump. Her story rings true to me. I also would like to encourage anyone who has suffered sexual aggression to know they are not alone and they can speak up. What was it like testifying today? It's nerve wracking. It's it's not fun. It's not fun. And I hope I never have to tell this story again. So thank you. One of the questions that keep coming up, uh, both for Eugene Carroll, for uh, Ms. Leeds, why didn't you say anything? Why didn't you report? And I really felt, sort of as a millennial woman, a generational divide. Leeds said that, she said, look, at that time, men got away with a lot. 
Uh, Eugene Carroll has also talked about the shame that she felt, even though she subsequently advised women in her advice column, to report assault. So it definitely feels like Me Too has really changed the ability that a lot of people have to talk about this freely. And and just thinking about what life was like for them, uh, it's it's really quite something that I've really taken away from this trial. It also struck me that, you know, when she called her friend, her friend tells her that was rape. And she really doesn't want to go there. She does not want to have that conversation. And to me, that that kind of struck as very much of that time where she wanted to move on. She did not want to continue talking about it. But like you said, in a cross-examination, the question becomes, why didn't you report it? Why didn't you tell more people? And I think that that is, you know, why that cross-examination is tough. And this friend told her not to, her advice, is is it uh, accurate that Lisa Birnbach told her not to go to the police? Or was this the one who told her you should go to the police? She was the one who told her she should go to the police. And and Eugene Carroll just said, look, at that time, I felt very ashamed. Now, the defense attorneys have really seized on the fact that she didn't report this and then subsequently advised other people to report through her advice column. It's unclear, though. I I was watching the jury yesterday when he was bringing this up, uh, the Trump defense attorney, just to see how they responded. They were all very attentive, but it was really unclear to me what they made of that. Because there were two friends, one who said said he'll bury you. Yes. And one, I guess you're saying, Lisa Birnbach, who said you need to go to the police. Exactly. And at the time, you know, he was a very famous real estate agent, obviously uh, well-known in social circles, but he was not at that time a politician. And on the cross-examination part, you were saying that the defense attorneys were bringing up, you know, uh, posts she had made where clearly she was not a a fan of Trump. I mean, you have that, of course, on one side, but of course, a very powerful accounting of, you know, being on the phone with Eugene Carroll after this happened. How do you see those two stacking up against, I mean, it's a jury of, of folks who some are probably wondering what you just alluded to. Why now? I really, well, I really do think that the contemporaneous recollection helps, right? The reason she's able to bring this forth well after the statute of limitations is because a window was opened to allow for one year to allow people to bring these kind of allegations forward. We've seen this in several states related to sex crimes, sexual abuse. You can bring forward things that have already passed the statute of limitation. But the hard thing is it's hard to get all the evidence. So to have a contemporaneous recollection like this, I think it's very powerful. But in terms of the Facebook posts, let me tell you, Everything you say on Facebook or social media can and will be used against you, even in your friend's court of law, right? The number of times they've pulled out Facebook posts, I mean, even the one yesterday from E. Jean Carroll asking if people would have sex with Donald Trump for $17,000, right? They thought they were just making a political joke, but it comes back to haunt you. So very quickly, what's going to happen tomorrow? So over the next few days, we expect E. Jean Carroll's lawyers will wrap up their case. Then uh, President, former President Trump's lawyers will be able to pre- present their defense. We only expect it, though, as point to be one witness. So this could, because there's no usually no court on Friday, this could go to the jury as soon as Monday. Who's his witness? He has one witness, is an expert, who could is expected to testify. It's unclear if this ab- absolutely will happen, but their plan is to have one expert testify remotely, and that is expected to be the extent of their case. The former president will not testify. We didn't expect that he would, but they confirmed that outside court. And let me tell you, his criminal defense attorneys in other cases are like, whew, they were really worried about what could happen if he got on that stand for his other criminal cases. All right. We'll be watching. Thank you very much for the update on all of that. Okay. Now, why the word ladies in an email has led to a second resignation of a school committee member in one district in Massachusetts. Omar's going to explain what's going on and what's wrong with ladies. (laughs) 
New fallout tonight over using the term ladies. A second school committee member in East Hampton, Massachusetts, has resigned in the wake of a superintendent search gone wrong. At the end of March, you may remember us reporting, the school search committee offered the job to Vito Perone. We interviewed him. He's a superintendent from another district. But then they rescinded the offer because he addressed committee members as ladies in an email. Perone says he was told the word ladies is a microaggression. Now, committee member Lori Garcia says, quote, the fact that you can say Madam Chair, but not ladies, the whole thing is ridiculous. Omar Jimenez has been following this story for us. I'm so glad you're here to explain this. Yeah. So, so look, <laughs> this is this is uh, really like a lot of dinner table talk over the over terms that are actually being used, because this is a community outside of Springfield, Massachusetts, where, as you as you said, it started the guy named Dr. Vito Perone. He was offered this superintendent job and he basically had gotten the job. But now it was time to just negotiate out the contract. So he sends the head of the school committee and her executive assistant an email starting it off with ladies and then lays out essentially his request for vacation days, sick days, that sort of deal. And so he didn't think anything of it. Well, they received that and uh, they, again, not only said it was a microaggression, but the school committee chair said that it was in many ways insulting because they did not think that he should be addressing people he would be working with in a professional setting in such a casual manner. And they also said that it was because of the amount of days he was requesting off. Right. So this is what has always confused me, is that was the ladies thing a pretext for the fact that they didn't want to negotiate his amount of time off? And we don't, do we know the answer to that? Well, and that's the major question. I would say that's the central question here. And by the way, use the term negotiate. Vito Perone would say, we never got to negotiate because I just kind of put forward my requests. Mm. And, you know, if there was an issue, we could have worked that out. But then the offer was rescinded. So then fast forward to this and another superintendent candidate that eventually withdrew uh, her candidacy. Fast forward here. Lori Garcia is a school committee member who has been going through all of this, you know, dealing with the votes. She voted for Perone in the beginning. Uh, she said that she was forwarded the email that said, ladies, and she didn't even clock that. She was like, whoa, why are they forwarding it? Yeah. Is it about the vacation days or whatever? And then when she found out later on that that may have been the major reason for it, she threw her hands like, well, this is ridiculous. And, you know, a lot of people in that community we're also coming to his defense as right. well, saying, what are we doing? Is here? ladies offensive? No. Is it, ladies offensive? Is offensive? I've offensive? never been offended by the term ladies. I feel like there's and, a lot of other microaggressions that can happen in a professional setting. Well, yeah. yeah. And, and the executive assistant, who was one of the original people addressed in this email, even came out on Facebook later and said, look, everybody, I'm not offended by the word ladies. But, of course, she has a job. So she goes, but I respect the opinion of anyone who may be offended yeah. uh, by those oh, terms. On. Yes. But, no, you're just a messenger. But, but, <laughs> but I think that the yeah. woman who did take umbrage at being called ladies yes. wanted it to be like Ms. Camerata, um, you know, wanted to be just yes. by her name. It's a very specific preference. Yes. Right? It shouldn't undermine someone's candidacy for a job at a time when it's very difficult to find higher education professionals. Do you guys remember Dimitri Martin? He had like a great bit about the word ladies. He said, you can make anything sound inappropriate by just adding ladies. It's like, want some pizza? 
ladies. Yeah. Yeah. CNN tonight, ladies. Yeah. That's what I think of when I think of ladies being inappropriate. But in this context, even the idea of it being a microaggression feels absurd. And the idea that this is happening in a school makes me concerned about what these kids are learning about what is and is not appropriate and the extent to which your feelings about a preference should dictate someone else's life. Well, and this second school committee uh, who uh, committee member who resigned, basically that was her complaint about the, this process. She said that it's, it's an embarrassment that this process has become what it is, that here they are now a month later from when they believed they were going to have a superintendent, and it's because of this reason. And another issue here that, that again, it's been a lot of little pieces in this uh, East Hampton community, was that this was decided there, uh, to rescind the offer in uh, the executive session of a school committee me- meeting. And so some have argued, hey, you went into executive session mm-hmm. and you didn't say the reason you were going into it was to rescind this offer or to consider the actual job. So now... In, Open meeting law complaint has been filed uh, with the state from another former committee member uh, while while the uh, school committee chair has said, well, we just said we were going to go in there and talk about strategies on so negotiation. So they don't have a superintendent during all of this? No, they don't. Oh, they, they do right now. Oh, they hired someone. No, it's, it's basically they're replacing this outgoing superintendent. But what they're going to have to do now is they decided to go to the state and essentially the state will help them find an interim superintendent until they can then find someone else to qualify and go through the this, real process. This is really bringing me back to some like local reporting days when I would cover yeah. school board meetings till midnight and you know open meetings laws, discussions about that. I think it's really remarkable that a search that really is pretty perfunctory in a lot of ways turned into a huge national news story because of a conversation about email language. And now I'm going to think very, very hard about how I address everyone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thing, you're talking about subtext, right? I mean, that's the thing, right? Quickly. Local School politics yeah. is some of the fiercest and most intense <laughs> yes, that's out yeah. there. Oh, yeah, that's true. An example that's a great point. You have to be able to speak the language, apparently. Town yeah. meetings in Massachusetts? Yeah. It's no I joke. Know, I know. <laughs> right. I mess with Massachusetts. Thank you. Please give us an update on this. Uh, of course. I, I, I sense there'll be many more follow. chapters. Um, all right. Thank you all very much. Up next, on the lookout, our reporters are going to tell us what stories they are looking out for on the horizon. We're back with our fantastic panel of reporters to tell us what stories they're keeping an eye on. We call it On the Lookout. First, I will be on the lookout for a reaction to this news that we just got into our newsroom tonight. This is a newly revealed text message. In it, Tucker Carlson makes strange and racist comments. Um, and we believe that this is the comment, according to The New York Times, that uh, in part led to his being fired by Fox. Uh, So in this text, he said he found himself briefly rooting for a mob of Trump supporters to kill a person. This is according to, again, this newly published report in The New York Times. Carlson wrote this in January of 2021, possibly the day right after the insurrection. This was a text message to a producer. Quote, a couple of weeks ago, I was watching video of people fighting in the street in Washington. A group of Trump guys surrounded an Antifa kid and started pounding the living shit out of him. It was three against one, at least. Jumping a guy like that is dishonorable, obviously. It's not how white men fight. 
Yet suddenly, I found myself rooting for the mob against the man, hoping they'd hit him harder, kill him. I really wanted them to hurt the kid. I could taste it. Then, somewhere deep in my brain, an alarm went off. This isn't good for me. I'm becoming something I don't want to be. The Antifa creep is a human being. Much as I despise what he says and does, much as I'm sure I'd hate him personally, if I knew him, I shouldn't gloat over his suffering. I should be bothered by it. I should remember that somewhere somebody probably loves this kid and could be, would be crushed if he was killed. I don't care about those things. Uh, if I don't care about those things, if I reduce people to their politics, how am I better than he is? The text message, which was included in the redacted court filings in the Dominion voting systems case, was swept up in discovery as part of the voting machine company's defamation lawsuit against Fox. This is, again, all according to the New York Times. The Times reports that that text message alarmed Fox's board of directors and played a role in Carlson's abrupt firing last month. It's too bad Tucker doesn't realize these things before he says them. Too bad he doesn't realize people's humanity first. Okay, let's go to our On the Lookout segment, guys. Um, (laughs) And welcome back. (laughs) Um, Lauren, tell us what you're you're looking out for on the horizon. Uh, There is a meeting tomorrow with Joe Manchin and Julie Su, who is the nominee for Labor Secretary for the Biden administration. She is still waiting to hear if three Democrats... Uh, Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, John Tester are going to support her on the floor. She passed out of committee last week. But this meeting is really critical to understanding whether or not this nominee is going to be able to move forward. And obviously, with Senator Dianne Feinstein still out, the numbers are really close here. And there's a possibility that this nominee could be in serious trouble. So I'm going to be watching really closely for the tea leaves that come out of that meeting tomorrow. Okay, excellent. Danny. Uh, as our uh, Philadelphia correspondent here at CNN, I'm looking forward to two weeks from today, the home stretch. It's election day in Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania primary is coming up May 16th. Uh, the last day to register to vote was yesterday, but there's still time to get your uh, absentee ballot, your mail-in ballot. Uh, a lot of big races, Philadelphia mayor, uh, Pennsylvania State Supreme Court, and also a lot of big races in Allegheny County in the western part of the state. That's what I'm looking forward to, this home stretch of that election season. And that's why our, you're our Pennsylvania correspondent. You're our Philadelphia <laughs> right. correspondent. Right. Exactly. Okay, excellent. But no mention of Embiid as MVP? Well, <laughs> if, if we must. Yeah, yeah, yeah. MVP. <laughs> MVP. Um, no, what I'm keeping an eye on is, is actually it's a case of deja vu because a year ago, May of last year, we were covering this story. It's out in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the last three living survivors of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre are basically going through a reparations lawsuit of the mental and physical damage inflicted on them over the years. And so last May, they cleared this major hurdle to try and actually move forward to trial on this. Well, a year later, there's been delays and delays and delays. And now they're having to go through another motion to dismiss a year later, which is going to be next week, on one of the survivors' 109th birthday. All three of those, these survivors are over 100 their defense has said, uh, or I guess essentially they're not the defense here, but they're uh, trying to to get uh, reparations. They've said that the city is trying to wait them out. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to be watching to see if actually this is the hurdle that allows them to go to go to trial. OK, Paul. Another Trump case, the criminal case, the first time he has ever been charged. Uh, he, his lawyers and prosecutors will be in court on Thursday to argue over how much the former president can actually discuss the evidence in that case. It's a really interesting constitutional question because he obviously has a First Amendment right. He's also a candidate for the presidency. 
But on the other hand, he rails against the prosecutors, right? Brings threats upon the judge. So they have to balance the extent to which he can share details of this case. I think it's a really interesting constitutional question ahead of a, it's going to be a long process for that criminal case. Thank you all. Really appreciate you guys being here tonight and tomorrow on CNN This Morning. New developments in the Anna Walsh case. What new reporting reveals about an alleged affair and a mysterious note sent days after she went missing. That starts at 6 a.m. Eastern. Tune into that. Thanks so much, everyone, for watching us tonight. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.